Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Trey German. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Good job, Trey. Thanks, guys. Rock on. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a few things on camera before, so this isn't my first rodeo. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is uh, Trey German, who's an engineer here in Houston, like us. And uh, he is working on a new IoT widget thingy that we actually manufactured for him at Macrofab. Yeah, um, actually, I've uh, I've got two revisions of it now that I've I've manufactured at Macrofab. Um, so I guess to tell you a little bit about it, it's a little Bluetooth motion tracker uh, that's about the size of a quarter. So I have a, a Bluetooth low energy uh, MCU on there, along with a uh, basically a ten axis uh, sensor uh, solution for you know mm -hmm. IMUs and things like that. So um, so far everything seems to work, and uh, I see it's got blinking LEDs. It, it you know. Everything you make has to have blinking <laughs> LEDs. Absolutely. It's kind of like a marketing requirement these days. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, if you're at a trade show or anywhere like that, I mean, the more LEDs you have, the more people are going to come to your booth. <laughs> yeah, and I saw on your uh, Twitter that you had some really cool enclosures made. I, I did. Um, so, you know, my degree is in computer engineering, right? Um, so traditionally, you know, my skill set has kind of revolved around, you know, firmware and, and uh, you know, designing circuit boards and things like that. Uh, but I've, I've kind of recently been branching out a little bit more into the mechanical side of things, uh, trying to learn kind of some of the 3D CAD tools and, and stuff like that. Uh, so, yeah, I actually uh, designed a little case for it uh, with FreeCAD, which is an open source uh, CAD package, and then got them printed out at Shapeways. Uh, and so the first one that I did actually worked. Uh, there were actually multiple pieces that had to snap together and, you know, all the dimensions had to be exactly perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, and, mm -hmm. and sure enough, uh, somehow uh, it worked and, and the board fit in there. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's been a fun project so far. Cool. Cool. So uh, I guess what what's the application for, for this Gizmo. Well, uh, that's. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, you know, when I started making this, I really tried to kind of look across the industry um, and and kind of see what was going on out there. Um, you know, if you look at uh, a trade show like CES or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, there's just so many devices out there, and you know, a lot of them are kind of of questionable usefulness, right? Uh, you you see a lot of these Me Too products or, or products that you know, just don't make a lot of sense. Yep. Like a tweeting toilet or something like that. Or right? a refrigerator <laughs> with a TV in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you don't really need these things. So so I saw that. Um, and I also saw uh, that a lot of the hardware that's out there today, uh, if you look at, you know, the actual electronics inside of a product or in, in a genre of products, uh, all the underlying electronics are really the same. Uh, really, it's only maybe the enclosure, or the packaging, and the software that you're running with it, uh, running on it, that that really differentiates it and gives it a different function. And so that's kind of what I set out to do was to build some hardware um, that didn't have a fixed function. So if you think about you know all these different motion tracking apps like your Fitbit or mm -hmm. like a smart golf club or something like that, it's you know probably Bluetooth, a, a, a microcontroller, and some um, accelerometers and so i want to build a product uh potentially that basically can do whatever you tell it to right uh so yeah, yeah, yeah so i want people to you know develop apps for this that 
they can then put it on their golf club and turn it into a smart golf club or use it as a Fitbit. Or, you know, for me, I actually, uh, I fly these things called powered paragliders. Mm -hmm. And so I want to put these on my equipment, uh, like the wing, Mm -hmm. uh, so I can see like the pressure uh, on the wing as I'm flying it and measure my control inputs um, and basically get some data uh, on when I'm doing all these crazy acrobatic maneuvers so I can, you know, tell how many G's I'm pulling, you know, how, how, how uh, upside down did I get, stuff like that. So um, it's been a fun project so far, and, you know, everything seems to be going smoothly. I think there's, there's still some uh, work that needs to be done on the software side, uh, as well as documentation, right? We all know yeah. that's important if we want other people to... Yeah, especially- to it's open source. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, right. Um, I, I do want to open source it. You know, um, if, you know, we look out there, you know, designs get copied, whether it's open source or not. And if it's open source, someone else can build off of it. Uh, exactly. and, and And really, you know, it could help them potentially. And I've seen that with a lot of the work that I did uh, with Texas Instruments, with the, the TI Launchpad boards, right? Mm-hmm. I think one of the cool things I saw on your uh, on your assembly, at least, I think it's got side-mounted LEDs, right? It does, actually. And they're um, RGB. It is a, a... I found this really cool package. Yeah, I, you know, I love digging around in DigiKey. Oh, and- this, that, that LED confused the bejeebus out of our assemblers. <laughs> I'm sure it did. That's the person that ever seen that thing. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, when I looked at the data sheet, yeah, the, the pads on the back of it are, are really uh, unique. Yeah. Because yeah. it can be mounted uh, both just like a normal face-up LED or on its side. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea was that if, if someone was wearing this little thing on their wrist or something, that side-mounted LED would be a lot easier to see than like a top mount. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if if their their arm is down by their side, uh, but I also have a top mount um, RGB LED, so you know it puts out some lights. It, it's it's got the blinking LEDs. It's got yeah. the required blinky. Absolutely, yeah, the required blinking absolutely. LEDs. Well, so so uh, yeah, uh, effectively, it's a board with a brain, and you uh, just tell it, you give it inputs, and run from there. Uh, yeah. So, um, it, as as far as like software goes uh the uh the device comes with basically a example firmware and for most people that's all they need right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's bluetooth low energy you go in there you tell it hey give me data uh and then it's going to report all that sensor data uh and so a lot of the processing uh, of that sensor data can actually be done you know on the app side uh so uh if a developer wants to use this thing Really, all they need to do is know how to, you know, develop an app, use JavaScript, HTML5, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They don't really have to get into the embedded firmware side. Right. They can, though, if they want. Uh, and, and, you know, if you want to add, you know, special features or things like that, you absolutely can do that. And okay. ultimately, right, what I want to be able to do is uh, have different apps, uh, if they do require a different firmware, be able to program that firmware with an over-the-air firmware download. Uh, and then over Bluetooth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then, you know, if when they're done using it for that application, you know, they fire up another app they want to use. It reprograms it, and you know, basically we have, you know, the goodness of open source hardware uh, and software, uh, but potentially, you know, bringing that to the consumer uh, who mm-hmm. traditionally hasn't had access to to the goodness of that that world you know yeah mm-hmm. they can go uh i guess the, the example you use on the paragliding and then they take it off that and then you know glue it to their golf club yeah exactly and, and one day and they just push the new firmware over to it and use the different app on their phone 
Mm -hmm. that, that's exactly the idea. Yep. Uh, and so it's not really a new concept in and of itself. It's kind of a combination of a lot of other ideas, right, uh, to kind of make something new. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I actually have one of these devices in my hand right now, and uh, when you said it's, it's the size of a quarter, it's pretty much exactly a quarter in a it's, way. It's <laughs> literally the size of a quarter, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm curious, what, what made you choose a circular board? Um, you know, it, I guess I wanted or, or initially thought of this kind of as like a, a watch form factor. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I made it round. Uh, and then also it uses coin cell batteries. Um, so the coin cells kind of also kind of made me go with a, a round shape because that was, that was uh, kind of the, the minimum size I could make it was the size of the coin cell holder. And so I tried to kind of squeeze it in and make it as small as possible. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you uh, you mentioned you were working at TI, but you're not anymore, right? No, actually, um, yeah. So what you uh, do over at TI? Well, last Friday was my last day at TI, and um, my title there was Launchpad Applications Manager. So um, I worked with all of the different launchpad boards that Texas Instruments produces, and I worked with people that were developing collateral uh, for that ecosystem. So people that were actually developing the boards within TI, uh, you know, external third parties and mm -hmm. hobbyists that were, you know, using the boards. Um, I also did a lot of, like, trainings and workshops at universities. Um, that That's probably going to be the biggest thing that I'll miss is, is you know, getting to, to go out there and teach people uh, how to use electronics. Well, hmm. you can always do the uh, go, do a class over at uh, TXRX. I could. Train and people I, over there. I'm actually a, a member over there. So um, I think that at some point I, I probably will. I'm actually developing... Uh, some training material right now uh, for how to build an app using the, the hardware that I've built here with uh, with Macrofab. And I'm going to do my first workshop on that at uh, Texas A&M in a week or two. Okay, so cool. it'll be good to kind of get some feedback from, from some students on, on the work that I'm doing and kind of see what people think. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you, you paraglide, right? I do. So I was looking on your Twitter um, and this is kind of not electrical engineering or anything like that, but uh, it looked like you had a motor failure. I did while flying. Yeah, so how was, was that? It was a little exciting. So uh, just a little, just just a little, little exciting. Bit, you, you know, know just just day in work. I'm just like <laughs> hanging out, you know, a couple hundred feet in the air, and then all of a sudden I hear what sounds like a bar bag of marbles uh, sloshing around behind me, <laughs> and and then it goes silent, and. You know, I'm like, oh, crap, you know, <laughs> my, my motor just cut out. Uh, I better land this thing. Well, thankfully, I'm on the beach, uh, and I was in a, a spot where it wasn't a big deal for me to just come down and land. Um, so I just kind of coasted down. And if you watch the video, uh, if you don't have the sound uh, turned up or turned on, um, it actually looks like it's completely purposeful, but it, it wasn't. <laughs> this was very much an emergency landing. So I landed, you know, um, got everything home and, and started taking the motor apart. Uh, turns out what had happened is uh, part of the piston had actually uh, broken off and got ground up inside of the motor itself. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm actually uh, rebuilding the motor. I just actually got the parts yesterday morning. Uh, and so I hope to be back in the air soon. Cool. Mm -hmm. well, that's probably a sinking feeling in your gut when, when something like that happens. 
a little bit. Uh, you know, it's more the the, the downtime that's that's tough. It's, it's, <laughs> You're more worried about not being back up. There. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's the same for all my buddies that I fly with. You know, we've had uh, a number of of motor issues over the past uh, you know several months and. I'm not sure what's causing it. Maybe it's, you know, the ethanol and the gas. I think these, these motors are, you know, they're real high compression, high uh, power output motors for their size. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think they mm -hmm. really need good normal gas without the ethanol. So maybe that, you know, caused it to heat up a little more or something. I, it's really hard to say. But yeah, because it, it looked like there was a lot of buildup on the uh, cylinder head. Yeah, there was there was definitely some gunk in there. But we'll, I'll get the, the carb all tuned up and, you know. We'll, it, we'll be it, back at it. Is it two cycle? Yeah, it's a two stroke. Okay. Yeah. So, do you have any uh, questions for us? Then we've been asking all the questions. Oh, uh, <laughs> not really. I mean, you know, I, I've I've known Parker uh, for for quite a while now, and uh, you know, yeah, I think we met at Maker, Maker Fair. Fair. Yeah, yeah, one of the Bay Area Maker Fairs. Yeah. But uh, no, I love the the work you guys do, and uh, you know, it's always good, uh, you know, working local here. Um, you know. It's, I like being able to go over and, you know, see my boards being built and, you know, talk to the people in person uh, that are doing it. And it, I think it's it's important to have that relationship with your uh, your suppliers, especially when you're doing something as complex as mm -hmm. electronics manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And actually, even as complex as your board is, yeah, it, it is two side assembly and there is no room to even grab the board when you're assembling these things. No. Yeah, it's uh, it's real tight. I tried to, like I said, keep it as small as possible. That was it, it was uh, you achieved that. <laughs> it was o four two, right? Size? Uh, yeah, o four o two. Okay, mm -hmm. and, no, we and can do o two o one. I I've heard. <laughs> um, I actually had originally uh, designed um, the first version with a few o two o ones, but I wasn't sure if you had upgraded your capabilities to that yet. Uh, so I went and redesigned it uh, with 0402s, and somehow I was able to get it to all fit. So I decided <laughs> to stick with that since it's a little bit cheaper to manufacture that yeah, way. 0402s uh, resistors are about half the price as 0201s. So. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. You would think smaller is cheaper, but no. not at that scale, yeah. Yeah, not at <laughs> that scale. Um, Actually, it's interesting is 0603 is actually the cheapest size. Really? 0805 is more expensive. That's what I think 0603 is like the break point where getting smaller is harder to you manufacture. Know, manufacture. That makes sense. Yeah, you would expect some type of inflection point there. Yeah. So, Stephen, uh, you've been working more on the super simple power supply. Yeah, yeah. We've uh, been talking about... Uh, Kind of, kind of off, off mic too. You know, prepping uh, Trey here about about <laughs> this project we've been working on. So I've heard you... a little bit about it. Just a little bit. Yeah. Giant op amps <laughs> and giant capacitor banks and water cooling and yeah, water cooled power supply. <laughs> all all this ridiculousness for just a power supply. Yeah. But that's what makes it awesome, right? That's if exactly. you're gonna do it, go big. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Steven's been working on the uh, basically the analog power bank. So can you tell us a little about what we've been working on this week then? Yeah, yeah. And and in the last uh, podcast, we were talking about laying down traces. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and we did lay down traces, but not on a PC board. We actually laid down big, giant bus bars for all of our <laughs> capacitor oh, yeah. banks. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, found a, I found actually some, uh, some copper bus bars that are uh, 5 16th of an inch by 5 16th of an inch. So just a massive copper 
rectangle. Uh, and actually, the capacitors we have are all screw-in type. So we're gonna we're gonna hook these these giant bus bars to all of our cap capacitor banks. And um, Parker had actually finished up the uh, uh, the drawing for the case mm -hmm. and and basically aligning in, uh, aligning in general where we want all of our parts to go. Um, and for the main power section where we have all of our control electronics um, and the op amps and the and the caps and things. We actually dubbed the name the um, Energon yes, Cube. Yes, the Energon Cube. The Energon Cube. <laughs> uh, so we tried to shove everything into basically one brick volume that's about six and a half inches by six and a half inches by about six inches tall. Yep. And, and we were able to put in, gosh, 80,000 microfarads of capacitance. <laughs> And 700 watts worth of power handling all into this one small brick. Wow. Uh, because we, we chose to build everything vertically. Uh, and it actually works out really nicely uh, where we have, we have the capacitors. They all have their bus bars. Above that, we have our, our actual PC board that has all the analog and the, the output op amps. And then above that, we have the water cooling. So it's just this nice block that includes yeah. everything. Yeah, you'll build everything when you, when you put this thing together everything stacks vertically so you don't the idea is so you don't have to put a screwdriver in sideways and then have to remove something to get to something else ah. so that's the idea hmm. so it it will probably only build one of these but it'd be very easy to actually make this thing well and, <laughs> and, and, should build and two. <laughs> i have an idea i have an idea did you guys see the hydraulic pressception video today yet? yeah i actually saw that video so yeah. what you should do you should build two of these cat banks Use one for the actual power supply, and then since these are electrolytics and they blow up pretty fun, you ought to use the power supply to blow up the Another second bank. capacitor bank. Just, just put them in backwards? And just for fun, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Then Next, we can crank dump, the juice. Uh, we can dump 20 amps into it with this power supply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that'll probably do it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, these capacitors, we bought, we bought the ones that have a stud mount on the bottom, so they actually okay. bolt into the chassis. Oh, wow. And they have a rubber pressure relief uh, uh, on top, so I don't know if they would explode. Oh, yeah. They'd just volcano out, yeah. and probably a huge mist of uh, whatever the crap they put inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you got to find the right caps. That's that's the key part. So maybe these aren't the right ones to blow up. But yeah. No. In college, I I worked in the the stock room, the double E stock room, mm -hmm. and I had access to this giant power supply. And so I would go in there and I would actually test which caps blew up the best. <laughs> and I found these ones that were, were just like firecrackers when you reverse bias them. And so in lab, you know, I would actually blow these up in the middle of the lab and like freak people out. It was really fun. Awesome. <laughs> so yeah, we'll, we'll be posting some, uh, some images of our uh, Energon cube yeah. uh, on, on the uh, MacFab blog so you can take a look at it. I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, it should be a... Uh, I think we'll actually be laying physical traces on PCB boards tomorrow uh, tomorrow yeah uh -huh. on that board now, now that we have we know where all of our mounting studs are we know where our power's getting in it's pretty much going to be a breeze from here on out laying down actual traces yeah because the big thing was making sure uh, where where does power come on and off the board and where does the op amps have to go in relationship to the water block yeah and when you're dealing with 700 watts worth of capability on a, on a single board you got to have to you have to have every all your ducks in a row. Yep. You know. You do want to be a little bit careful. A little bit careful. It's it, a lot of power. And, and we calculated out. It's almost 
four watts per cubic inch. It's not bad. It's not bad. In, well, that's just the well, just in, cube. in okay. like uh, yeah. So, the, but when you expand it to the entire chassis enclosure, it's it's like probably a tenth of a watt. Or <laughs> yeah, <less. that's> true. <laughs> something really low. <laughs> okay, I guess we'll uh, we'll move on to the RFO section, the rapid fire opinion. Now with more opinions. Yeah, now with more opinions. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's this really cool video uh, online. I'll, I'll link it into the blog. Um, and actually, Trey has not seen this, I don't think. But it's assembling transistor radios, and it's a video from 1955. Uh, and basically, it's about the first transistor radio that was ever commercially made. And it was actually designed by TI in 54. Oh, mm-hmm. Called the TR1 by uh, Regency. Very cool. And it was built in Indiana. And the crazy thing about it is the video goes through basically the entire manufacturing process of this thing. And they go over, like, it's American-made, like, because this is, you know, back in Cold War, uh, starting yeah, in the Cold sure, War era. Sure. Yeah, they say that in pretty much every scene. Yeah. Um, <laughs> whereas every single part, including the PCB board, the components... The enclosure, everything was made in some factory in the United States, and it encompassed uh, uh, the all manufacturing, everything. Every industry went into building this thing. It took all of America to make a transistor radio. Yes, in 1955. That was, <laughs> was cutting-edge technology it, back it then. It really was. Yeah. yeah. You know? But um, it's not really... I don't really want to talk too much about the radio, though, but the... Uh, thing about it, is, uh, the video is they show all the manufacturing they do, and so they have a quote wave solder machine, <laughs> which is actually just a vat of lead solder. That sounds safe. On a and so they put the boards in this little holder, and it goes on a Ferris wheel, that that dips it in in rosin flux, and then it moves it and drags it into the uh, the vat of leaded solder, and then someone just plucks it off. <laughs> and dumps it into probably what's paint thinner yeah. <laughs> and brushes it. No protection equipment at all. Person's no. not wearing gloves, apron, just wearing standard street clothes, no safety glasses, no nothing. Yeah, there there is there is a vat <laughs> of liquid video, metal you know? on the table right next to this woman. Yeah. And and this board goes in there and explodes yeah, with, like, with all the smoke coming oh, off wow. of it. And she just reaches her hand into there and pulls it out. <laughs> the, like the safety she's done it. Oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, another scene, there's a, a person soldering the, the speaker. And the iron is like an inch in diameter, is what the tip looks like. <laughs> well, they're soldering right to the basket of the um, yeah. of the actual speaker. Oh. Yep. So I, it's got to be a couple hundred heat. watt. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a monster iron. It's probably like a 300, 400 watt iron. Oh, yeah. Because it's just like, dunk, and that's it. Yeah. Oh, wow. She doesn't put take any time on that. No. Yeah. Huh. And and all the boards hand stuffed. They show them. Yeah, they hand stuff. And the the boards are, at that point, there would just be uh, their single layer, uh, yeah. uh, boards. And so they don't even have silk screen. So they had to memorize everything where all those parts go. Mm. And they're they're actually very populated um, and compact. This board is not that uh, sparsely populated. Mm-mm. It's it's a really cool video, especially if you have any experience in manufacturing, to see what we still do the same and what is like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? <laughs> this is scary. We never do that at scale. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and actually, at the, and the, at the very end of the video, they show someone actually using it, and it's got the it's a lady 
at getting your hair done with those giant things that come the over their head. Hair dryer. Yeah, yeah, it has uh-huh. one of those. So that really dates the video. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was the fifties, right? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. So yeah, um, the video shows lots of unsafe manufacturing processes. <laughs> it's it's a fun one to watch. Was OSHA around back then? No. No. Yeah. So there no. you go. <laughs> They were probably created because of things like this video. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't even think that Ferris wheel idea would work with leaded solder either. So. We should make a replica of it. Replica? Yeah. Make it work with leaded? Make it work with, with uh, non-lead. Oh, yeah. Do a non-leaded? Yeah, I guess we can make it work. So. Yeah, you've already got your selective solder thing, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that actually, it's one of the things I want to build is a, uh, a vapor vapor reflow oven. Oh. Yeah. In a cardboard box, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically uh, like sous vide for, for PCB boards. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've done the, the classic toaster oven reflow, but that's as far as I've gone at home. Yeah. So we have a regular convection uh, oven at Macrofab, but I always want to try uh, basically vapor phase. So your liquid basically boils at the melting temperature of your solder, and you just do that for six minutes. Huh. Yeah. The really good thing about it is nothing on your PCB board gets above that vapor the temperature. temperature. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, because with with a uh, conventional convection style oven, you know, it all depends on how fast your your line goes. It depends on how many zones. The ramp up, it's 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 the a lot harder to control. Yeah, itself. oh, thermal mass, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. But this doesn't care about thermal mass. No, you, you <laughs> put the board in there, set it six minutes, ding, done. Huh. Yeah, it's a it's a blanket of hot vapor, basically. What yeah. what do you use as the vapor? It's some kind of um, it's some kind of fluid. Uh, I don't know the the technical aspects of sure, what kind sure. of chemical it is, but basically, it's like at two thirty five Celsius, it vaporizes. Huh. And then. And the entire chamber is supposed to be sealed, so when you cool it back down, it condenses back to liquid, and then you recover all your liquid. Gotcha, gotcha. That's um, interesting. I've yeah. It, never heard of that, actually. The only downsides to that fluid is if you heat it too hot, it actually breaks down to hydrochloric acid, which can eat what vat it's in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'd eat the stainless, probably. There's always got to be a downside like that. Yeah. But you have to get it pretty hot. Like um, I think it needs to get like 280 Celsius before that happens, and at that point your board is you know toast. Toast. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got some type of PID on there to you know keep it in check. So. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it has plenty of shutdowns. Oh yeah. That yeah, prevent that from happening. And then uh, I guess we'll go talk about connectors. And this is actually gonna be an interesting topic because I have never talked to uh, Trey here about connectors. What kind of connectors do you like? What do you not like? Um, what's your go-to style connector? That kind of stuff. Well, um, you know, I'm probably going to be kind of boring here. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, a lot of the time my go-to is going to be your standard 0.1 inch, you know, 100 mil pitch male header pins, you know, the classic. Trim headers. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just so easy to work with and, you know, you buy a strip of it and you cut them to size and can stack them up in whatever kind of a array you need. And you can um, buy them anywhere. Yeah, yeah. They're pretty ubiquitous. They're easy to hook scopes onto or, or other equipment. Um, and, you know, the crimps are, are not too expensive or, or the crimping tools um, for the, the female side of things as well. Um, 
and then also you've got this this whole ecosystem of you know jumper wires and you know if we look across the kind of dev board industry you know mm-hmm. if there's one connector for DIY hobbyist kind of stuff that's it yeah but that said you can mess those up you can do that wrong uh, well, Arduino did that wrong <laughs> exactly yeah uh, you know if you've got one of these connectors um, with 100 mil spacing why the hell do you you know space it that extra you know 50 mils or whatever it is on the uh, the Arduino um, you know to sell it, you more proto boards I guess that's it. <laughs> um, you've got to buy, you know, one of their things to do it. It's hard to kludge something together uh, with header space like that. There's a reason it's point one spacing. Mm-hmm. Stick yeah. to it. Yeah, <laughs> don't do mess it. it up. And you know, uh, and and then when you're designing a board, you know, with those things, um, right? Uh, this goes back to the Arduino thing, right? Uh, even if you've got stuff spaced all over the board. Uh, and these connectors are not meant to, you know, you've got two sets of connectors that aren't meant to kind of interface with each other. You should still keep everything on a 100 mil grid. There's no reason to, you know, shift any, anything because um, then it's easier to plug, you know, proto board into or, or a breadboard or, or build you know, a test what, whatever. Yeah, any, mm-hmm. anything, right? There's no reason to, to do anything but, but space those 100 mil. <laughs> yep. So, Stephen, what do you like? Um, if I have the capability at my hands, I love Molex connectors. You can't go wrong with a good old Molex. But uh, I've I've in in the past I've had the the uh, ability to have an automatic crimper. Uh, so making Molex connectors was really easy. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't have that crimper, uh, it's a little more involved. It's it's a a lot more <laughs> involved. So I'd I'd have to go with Molex. You really can't go wrong with them, and they're cheap. And readily available, and mm-hmm. you can get them in all different shapes and sizes and colors. And I, I'd, I'd, I'd go with them. Cause I'd, I'd go with the anti-connector, the uh, tag connects. Oh, uh, yeah. Little pogo pin header things. Um, basically, whenever a customer goes, oh yeah, I need to put a programming header. I'm like, do this, it will work. And it's cheap. <laughs> and it's cheap because it's in free. production. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> That's right. Um, I actually will probably use. A programming solution like that for the final version of of these boards that I'm working on, I think I could probably pretty easily build a jig uh, and pull. Right now, I've got like a little 50 mil uh, spaced uh, male header. Uh, is like for, a, for JTAG? Like a, yeah, JTAG. Yeah, yeah is and, it a two by five? Yeah, it's a two by five. Um, but I feel like I could pull this off and use just normal pogo pins to touch down on those pads and. With a jig, it'll you know position it correctly and. Yeah, I've actually got a part number for pogo pins that will work with a two by five fifty mil JTAG header. Ah, it took a while, but you've I, done this before. Yeah, I actually <laughs> have. I uh, finished it on Tuesday. Oh, very um, nice for for a customer. Then I made a little three D printed bracket, and it, that goes on top of the PCB board, and the pogo pins poke through it. Mm-hmm. And you just go clunk, and then you hit program. Yeah, that's that's basically up. exactly what I'm gonna gonna try to do for a production programming solution. Yeah, I'll uh, send you the part numbers. All right, and I guess I'll put the part numbers in the blog post too. Good deal, thanks, man. Yeah. So you say what connectors you like? What connectors do y'all loathe? Hmm. I I got one for you real quick. The JTAG connectors. <laughs> <laughs> On the manufacturing side, I guess. Uh, well, no, the thing is, it doesn't seem like they. there's a lot of options around them. I mean, you get that 
to, to, for the for the the uh, uh, what is it fifty thousand spacing? There's not a lot out there for it, mm-hmm. uh, and so finding things like those pogo pins that Parker was talking about, it took a long time to find something that would work on that. Yep. Uh, huh. wow. be just because of your clearance between each pin is so small, mm-hmm. you have to use something tiny for it. And so those, those JTAG connectors are just a, a pain if you're trying to work with them on the manufacturing And, and side. it's not even just finding a pogo pin that fits in the pitch width. It's finding a pogo pin that also has a big enough head on the top to not go through your through-hole uh, connector. Yeah, that's right. Well, you said that these are small, but it's a, it's funny you mentioned that. Uh, I'll bring up a, a TI thing, right? So, when they actually manufacture these chips, then when you know they do tests and things like that, they actually come down uh, on like a wafer uh, with these needles, and they will actually touch down on the, the little bond pads of the chip mm-hmm. uh, to do the test. And so that was always fascinating to me. You know, the precision mm-hmm. required to manufacture something like that that you know, can keep the tolerances of, you know, a few, you know, I don't, I don't even know the scale. Less than a mil. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, no, they're uh, a couple of micron. Yeah, a couple of micron, uh, yeah. you know, and, and then to be able to do that repeatedly over the lifespan of this, you know, test thing uh, that kind of touched us down, uh, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> Those jigs are incredibly expensive. They are. <laughs> Ridiculously they're, they're, they're not expensive. Cheap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's what you need, right, to test a chip when you're you're manufacturing, you know, actual silicon devices. Yeah. Yeah. So not really a connector, but certainly a way of connecting to something. So yeah. maybe it is a connector. <laughs> yeah, and I hate the uh, kind of uh, they're actually Molex connectors. <laughs> I hate <laughs> the they, uh, the the kind that you um, you press the wire. And it slices the wire and connects to the core. Oh the wire. yeah. Um, I can't remember. I think they're called IPC hmm. or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. They're really cheap. IBC, I think, is actually. Yeah. 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 They, Anyways, they, they, they people use those um, in ribbon style a lot for board to board connection. Yeah, ribbon style a lot. Um, automotive uses it a lot. Yeah. Uh, pinball machines use it a lot. Really? Yes. Audio amplifiers. Use them a lot. Basically, telecom guys like the the linemen out there, right? Yeah. When they're dealing with the twisted pairs, they'll use those. Yeah, yeah. I do not like those connectors at all. Mm. They're they're really fast and really easy. That's the only thing that I'm going <laughs> yeah. for. Right, they, vibration. They're done. <laughs> yeah, different connectors for different apps, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of uh, goes into kind of what you're starting to do, uh, IoT stuff. Um, there's a company or used to be a company called Revolve who got bought up on Nest and they got bought up by Google, but they did home automation and they are turning off the IoT servers and will basically make people's houses stop working. Well, I'm not sure their house will actually stop working, but... Yeah, it'll turn off and just rain comes in. <laughs> your house just collapses when, when your IoT device goes off. Thanks, Resolve. Yeah, I... I saw this story. I thought it was really interesting. Um, you know, I think that this is one of the the kind of new issues that we're going to start to see more of as the world continues to change and this IoT, uh, you know, continues to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of these devices are dependent on some type of, uh, wait for it, here's another buzzword, cloud service. Um, <laughs> you know, hey, that's th- what we do. <laughs> I, I, am I doing all right? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're dependent on some type of cloud service, and that's all well and good, right? You, we need some type of 
you know, server that, that our devices can connect to. But when these devices are, you know, closed um, and, you know, you can only get support through, you know, the company that manufactured it, uh, you're out of luck if, you know, they do something like this. And, you know, I'm sure there were valid business reasons behind doing this. Uh, but, you know, to the end consumer, they don't really realize that. They just see that the $300 device that they've paid for mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, should give them whatever functionality, it doesn't work anymore. And that's that's really frustrating to a consumer. Um, so, you know, how do we fix that? I guess uh, the only thing is either use... Um uh, have open source, but I, it, the thing about open source though is it doesn't really solve completely that problem to the end consumer, because most end consumers aren't going to care that it's open source. They, Correct. Because um, what are they going to do with the all the source stuff? They can't even compile it, right? Or even know how to make the server run. Right. Ninety nine percent of users wouldn't even know what that is. Yeah. Um. So I guess the most important thing is, is set it up to be either your. Uh, it, it's your your servers are more fractured, I guess, and so anyone can spin up a like an AWS server. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I certainly think that's that's one way to approach it, um, but I think there's others. I, I think the open source is an important part of it. Uh, I think that's something that, like you said, consumers don't really care about. But um, I think that you know potentially you could you know, market this in a way to consumers to actually make them care about it. Mm -hmm. You probably don't want to call it open source, but, you know, if you were to have some fancy buzzword you could throw at this um, to label... Community supported. Yeah, you know, something like that. And we've seen, you know, time and time again, um, you know, the web and and just, you know, all the people that are out there, um, they can do some amazing things uh, if, if they're motivated. And so I think if companies, you know, kind of put this stuff out there uh, and, you know, open source parts, maybe not all of it, but, you know, some of the key things that people would need um, to make these devices useful again after a company is gone. I, I think that, you know, it'd be it'd be interesting to see see a company that does that. Yeah, because you, you would you'd have to imagine that at least one user that has one of these Revolve products could actually get a server running and then he could, you know, say, hey, you know, Pay me ten dollars a month, and I can make this work. Still, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's there's potential business there for for that person, right? Yeah. Um, well, okay. So, as the customer, uh, is it reasonable for me to assume that if I purchase one of these things, it will have access for the next I don't know foreseeable thirty years? I I don't I don't know if I if that's reasonable to assume that. Sure, but well, well it, that brings up a good point. Is do you, if you're dependent on the parent company of basically staying alive and just keeping the servers running, do you still even own that device, or are you just renting it? Yeah. Since you are dependent on the that service, staying alive, it's kind of like um, Google when Google Reader went away, mm-hmm. their their uh, RSS feed thing. Um, there was actually a lot of a uh, lot of people that were using that up uh, that. Uh, their uh, API for it. Yep. And uh, that went down and like half the readers stopped working. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember there being a little bit of uh, outrage at, at that. But, you know, it's it's the same thing. And so until I think that we see more openness in the um, kind of consumer electronics market, 
we're going to have more stories like this. Um, so, you know, I, it'll be interesting to, to see what happens and, and mm-hmm. see how companies approach this in the future because it's, it's certainly going to be an ongoing problem. Yep. It's a little surprising that Google would make this decision. Of, of all the companies, yeah, I wouldn't expect it coming from, from them. Although I'm sure they analyzed it and the number of people who do this versus whatever value that is. They made an educated decision. It's probably not one guy just like, oh, turn it off. No, absolutely. Oh, I bet you most of those people that have this product are iPhone users. So they don't, they don't care too much about them. <laughs> Maybe that's it. You may be onto something there, Parker. <laughs> I think that's going to do it for our, our podcast this week. So we were your host, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. And I'm your guest, Trey German. Catch you all next time. Take it easy. Thanks, guys. <laughs>